You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world. Here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem as we begin our new episode in our character workshop. Uh, I want you to be all aware of the fact that Teller from Jerusalem can also be viewed via YouTube by going to tellerfromjerusalem.com, where each episode is in both series is enhanced and enriched with spiffy visuals that clarify and significantly augment our discussions. We concluded our last, our first series in the character development by saying that a person must see the value and the importance of every single act. The way the Talmud phrases it and the way Maimonides formulates it is that you have to view yourself as equally balanced. You're balanced, your community is balanced, the world is balanced. Do one more act, think how significant this is. It can weigh and tip the scales in your favor, the community's favor, and the world's favor. You can save the world with just one little act, or as they like to say it, one act at a time. Every act is significant, and that connection, you want to mention, that should be the mindset of a voter. People say, why should I vote? There's millions and millions of voters. My vote is not going to make a difference. On the contrary, with that kind of mindset, nobody would get elected. Every vote makes a difference. Now, there is a special skill and a science, and I hesitate with these words because you don't have to be a scientist and you don't have to be an artist. Plain, ordinary Joe, Tom, Dick, and Herschel. Anybody can learn how to say the right thing at the right time. And what you have to do is observe people who say things which are tactful and pleasant, watch what they say and try and incorporate those words into your daily vocabulary. Parents will pull up a school and complain about any little thing, how they think the child was mistreated, and they'll fetch, and they'll complain, and they'll bellyache. But why don't they ever call up to say how things were going well? Or the school calls you up and say they have an expansion drive now. We need your financial assistance. If you don't have the money, at least what you could do is call up the school and thank them for what a good teacher. This doesn't cost you a penny. There's never been a teacher that's been overpaid. So all you have to do is call up and express your gratitude. It doesn't cost a penny. If you can't contribute to the school, is you should contribute to the esteem and the ego of the teachers. Now, before we move on to our next subject, let's speak about this really important rule in criminology that's become world famous called the broken window theory. It was first published in The Atlantic by two criminologists whose names I do not recall. Then it was published again in Psychology Today and became world famous when Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this in The Tipping Point. The idea of the broken window is if you have a broken window in a dilapidated building in a bad neighborhood and it's not repaired, the next day there'll be two broken windows and then three broken windows and then there'll be squatters, there'll be fires, they'll turn into a crack house. The idea is that each problem which goes unattended is creating an environment that affects people's attitude towards the environment and it leads to more problems. A very important corollary is, is that if there is a problem which is well tended and groomed and problems are dealt with, this affects attitudes and leads to continued good management and maintenance. I think about this now, uh, I don't know when this is going to be screened, but during the COVID pandemic, People are in capsules of saran wrap, and that's a way of containing. So if there's a problem, it doesn't spread out and affect others. That's containing an environment. So what happened was, in the 1980s, New York City was plagued with so much 
crime, murder, mayhem, and subway ridership was so low it had plummeted to be lower than when subways were first established. So New York City hired a fellow named Gunn, G-U-N-N, who was a disciple of the broken windows theory. And he decided he was going to clean up the subways using the idea of broken windows. He was not going to let a train roll with graffiti. Now in a subway, there are many problems. There are murderers, panhandlers, rapists, extortionists, and he's worried about graffiti. But this is the broken window. So they would park the trains at night in Harlem, 138th Street, and the kids would jump over the walls and they would paint the sides of the train white. The next day they would do the frame in black, and the third day they would color in all their Bob Loves Lucy or Geraldo Loves Juanita and fill it in. And then after this, they would come from the city with rollers and paint over everything. And the kids broke down crying. All their work was for naught. But he was teaching a lesson. The trains are not going to roll if there's graffiti. We can't allow a broken window. Then after this, New York City hired William Bratton from Boston or Boston, Boston. He was an Irish cop, Bill Bratton, who was also a disciple of the broken windows theory. And he was in charge of cleaning up the subways, not the graffiti, but getting law and order in New York. Bratton decided we're going to rectify the situation of fare beaters. Fare beaters are those who jump over the turnstile, go under the turnstile, hold open the clamp door and go through. And the way he did this was, now today there is the Metro Pass. In those days there was a token, a buck 25. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to bust the fare beaters. And the cops were incensed. This is such an incredible waste of time. In the, in the bowels of the subway, there are rapists, embezzlers, panhandlers. You're going after the fare beaters for buck 25. So if a cop goes after a kid who jumps over the turnstile, that means he's going to have to bust him, arraign him, take him down to the station, do the prints, then come back for a day in court. He'll get a slap on the wrist. And meanwhile, it takes a cop out of the beat for at least one and a half days. He said, no, this is a broken window. It has to be repaired. So what Bratton did was he had in every station about 10 undercover cops in plain clothes. When a kid would jump the turnstile, they would bust him. They would clamp him to the rail with the handcuffs. Then they wait for the next person. They clamp him to the first guy, and then another one, and then another one, and it was a daisy wheel. And all the neighbors saw them, they were humiliated, but it created a message. When you had 25 and it was a full catch, they took them outside, and outside there was a city bus that had been retrofitted to be a police station on wheels. There was a fax machine, uh, fingerprinting facilities, and they had a bonanza, because everyone that they busted they frisked. One out of 20 had a concealed weapon. One out of seven had an outstanding warrant. And they were uncovering, it was like open up Cracker Jacks, there was always a present within. And before these cops that were so resentful now saw the wisdom of this, and like this, overnight, in the blink of an eye, crime in New York plummeted. In the blink of an eye, New York became one of the safest major cities in America by following the system of broken windows because otherwise the problems just snowball and snowball. So the take-home message for all of us is, is also if we have a problem which has to be rectified, if we don't deal with it, it can metastasize. You have to deal with it when it's just one single broken window so it doesn't become more and more we get accustomed to it and it's just a matter of getting adjusted to it without rectifying it, which has to be done. Now here's a dilemma that we face every single day. 
When you're confronted with a dilemma of you're in a fork, do you do this or do you do that? Or you're trying to decide what is the right action to take? Is this right? Is this appropriate? So when you have this dilemma, you have to ask yourself the following question. What is motivating me? Is it my good inclination or my evil inclination? Just answering this one question will usually determine the appropriate course of action. Now, in preparing this podcast, I realized that evil inclination and a good inclination is a Jewish term, and I want to be able to appeal to a broader audience, so I wanted to know how to express an evil inclination or a good inclination in the lingua franca of the world at large. So I couldn't find it. At least for the first eight or nine Google pages, there was no reference other than Jewish. So whenever I'm stuck, I call my very, very clever pastor friend, Pastor Brogi, and he told me it's called, based on verses in the Christian Bible, it's called either, well, just blow out all the other noise, it's basically called conscience. Conscience is the good inclination, and the evil inclination is either a soiled, a despoiled, or a corrupted, a calloused conscience. First, let me give a fundamental, rudimentary explanation. The Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination, is moral conscience. When your inner voice reminds you of God's law, when you consider doing something which is forbidden. According to some views, this is only instilled within a person, a female at the age of 12 and a male at the age of 13, when you achieve the age of maturity. The evil inclination is not the desire to do evil in the way we normally think of it in Western society, which would cause senseless harm. Rather, it's usually conceived as selfish nature, and that desire to satisfy personal needs, be it food, shelter, lusts, without regard to moral consequences, in fulfilling these desires. The Talmud notes that without the evil inclination, then man would not build a house, marry a wife, beget children, conduct business affairs, but that's a little bit beyond our scope for today of how to harness the evil inclination to work on behalf of the good. But I believe that the concept that the world at large talks about, the devil made me do it, is not certainly not a Jewish concept because that's something which is perceived to be outside of a person's conscience. And therefore, it's some external force, which I'm very dubious about. Now, people have the ability to choose right or wrong. We can follow which impulse to follow, the good or the bad. That's the very heart of the Jewish understanding of free will. And that's why Maimonides, when he's talking about doing repentance, talks about how important it is to understand the concept of free will. And since we all descended from Adam, no one can blame his own wickedness on his ancestry. On the contrary, we all have the vote to make our own choices and will be held responsible for the choices that we make. You'll find a fine essay on this in Judaism 101 by Tracy Rich. Now, let me give you two examples. One very, very current. I heard about this just two days ago. And one also current. One example is my friend was telling me, we were walking home the other day, and he told me, that he was called up by a seminary in Jerusalem, which has post-high school uh, female students, asking if he could host a student for the holiday. And even though his wife had just given birth, they decided, why not? So they hosted this student, and then late at night, they heard this girl throwing up and other signs of very serious illness. His wife had just, you know, just given birth, so he had the unpleasant task of going in to see if everything was all right. Things were really not all right at all. She was seriously ill, and reluctantly she confessed to him 
that she was a diabetic and her insulin had been locked in the seminary and she didn't have access to it. So he drove her to the emergency room and all night long she was touch and go. By the morning they had able to give her enough insulin and she recovered. And she'd made my friend vow that he would never reveal that she was a diabetic. After the holiday was over, her mother called up from America. This occurred here in Israel. And the mother said, thank you so much for saving our daughter's life. And she vowed him to secrecy that he may not reveal that the daughter is a diabetic. Their concern was that if it was known that the girl was a diabetic, this could impede her ability to find the right match and be readily and easily married. Now, if you analyze what they did, it was not terrible. It wasn't mean. She wanted what everybody wants, to be able to get married. But if you analyze what motivated it, it really was the evil inclination. And in the process, they almost lost the girl's life. But they are not people that are seeking evil. They just didn't make this proper analysis. My other example is a scandal much more, well, also very recent, which broke in March of 2019. Celebrities paid outrageous astronomical bribes to get their children admitted to elite schools through fake academic and athletic credentials. Now, the stars who did this cultivated a culture of greed and corruption, but it was not basely evil like what Tanya Harding did to Nancy Kerrigan in the whack heard again around the world. And yet and yet, these parents, most of them who pled guilty to crimes charged, had they analyzed what motivated them, they would have concluded that it was the evil inclination and that might have altered their selfish and shameful actions. Another way of framing the very same question is, what would bring about more glory for heaven? And if you can answer this question, then you'll think about, if I have two actions or two paths or two directions, what's gonna bring more glory for heaven may send you down the right path. Then the Talmud teaches, and this is counterintuitive, it flies in the face of normal reasoning, that righteous people are greater or more powerful after their deaths than during their lives. The reason that this statement flies in the face of reason is that we would imagine that a person's power and influence will decline after their passing. I can think of many Jewish leaders that were moderately popular in their lifetime, but after they passed away became these mega, mega superstars. One example, Rabbi Shlomo Karlebach was a popular singer. He was basically associated with hippies. And when he passed away, he became this mega, mega rock star. You can't walk into a synagogue without hearing his songs being sung. And his legacy of holy brother, looking at everyone with sweetness and kindness, has uh, been an inspiration for so many people. Another example, both scholars and laymen agree that the most popular president and most esteemed president of the United States was Abraham Lincoln. But that surely would not have been the conclusion in 1863, even one year later, when Lincoln thought that his bid for re-election was not going to be fulfilled, uh, it would not have happened that he was then propelled, if not for the fact of Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, his own death one week later, which foisted him in the pantheon of presidential greatness. Lincoln's canonization was so great that immediately after his death, people viewed him as Jesus. He was the liberator of the slaves, the savior of the union. He had given his life so that others could be free. President Lincoln became Father Abraham. He was the masterpiece of God. His humor was presented as an example of his humanity. His numerous pardons were demonstrated to his great soul. 
And his sorrowful demeanor reflected the burdens of his lonely journey as the leader of a blundering and sinnering people. This demonstrates pretty powerfully the enduring effects of good character. And to this discussion, we can also add the rabbinic lesson, the evil while alive are considered dead, and the righteous while dead are considered alive. Maybe that's worth repeating. The evil, even while they are alive, are considered dead, and the righteous, even after they are dead, are considered alive. How could this be? Simplistically, it means that the evil are not contributing to society. So as far as we're concerned, they're as good as dead. But the righteous, even after they are dead, their legacy and their lessons still impact on the world. I think about this all the time. Hasidim make a big deal about a yard site. Yard site is the anniversary of the death of either a relative or of a saintly person. And it's assumed that a person is judged twice, once upon their death, and then every year on that yard site, on the anniversary of the death, it's reassessed in heaven, what did this person accomplish in their lifetime and posthumously? So there are people in their lifetime who were very beneficial and very scholarly, and now we're still learning from their works, and they're going higher and higher and higher, light years higher in heaven, even after they're passing. When a parent passes, they live on if what they stood for is nobly carried on by their offspring. This parochial perspective got a very interesting twist last week when I read that the Viking lander, for those of you not familiar, in the 1970s, the United States launched a mission to Mars called Viking, and the Viking lander was to land on Mars, as indeed, it, as indeed it did in July 1976. Rabbi Velvel Green was NASA's life science research director. He was charged with immunize, immunizing the Viking lander. Why? Because they had to ensure that microbes from Earth would not be present on the lander that could be confused with signs of life on Mars. Then came this very profound existential question. What if Martian life is so different, life on the red planet is so different than life on Mars, how can we measure what life is? Then came the question, how do you measure what is considered universal, universal definition of life? And the dilemma led to postulate what's considered life. And to dumb this down a little bit, the conclusion was that whatever can change the surroundings is considered life. If I'm going to dumb this down, in other words, on Earth, Plants are considered alive because they oxygenate the air. Animals are alive because they change the environment around them. And the take-home message is that you can continue impacting upon the environment, and from a Jewish perspective, as long as it's positive, that keeps you alive. Hence, any influence that continues to impact, even after it's dead, lives yet. That's eerily familiar to the adage, those are not dead who live in the hearts, they leave behind. And we'll talk about martyrdom and how this connects in our subsequent episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes a never-fail approach how to inculcate good character. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com. You can find more details about this show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you will receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced price of all Hanoch Teleproducts, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com. 
please see our YouTube channel for a richer than just audio experience with spiffy visual components and elements, also accessible from the Telefilm Jerusalem website, where the list of general and specific credits are listed. <laughs>